This morning is the 12th study um, in Paul's letter to the Philippians, and uh, we're going to be reading this morning from uh, chapter 3, verses uh, 1 to 11. And uh, before we read the passage, I'd like to say to you that this passage might sound a little bit strange to your ears this morning, especially if you are someone who has only recently started reading the Bible. So let's, let, let's pray, shall we? Lord, we just pray that you will give us spiritual eyes to see and ears to hear. We pray today, Lord, that you will give us sensitive hearts, understanding minds as we study this passage. We pray also, Lord, that you might grant us faith to put into practice the things that you are going to show us today. And we pray this, Lord, for your honour and for your glory. Amen. Amen. Okay. As I say each Sunday, do encourage you to bring your Bibles along, but if you've not got a Bible today, I'll put the words that we are looking at this morning up on screen. And uh, starting in chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, in the flesh I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. Amen. Someone once said to me, why is it when Dan, when he is preaching, he says in conclusion and concludes, but you say lastly and last? Well, the cheeky person, if they are right, if they are correct in that, uh, then it sounds as though Paul has a dose of my disease. He is only halfway through this letter of Philippians, two chapters to go, and he says, finally. And in about four weeks' time, we're going to come to his final finally, in chapter 4, verse 8. <coughs> but why does he do that? Um, finally, with two chapters to go. I think of it perhaps in this way. You've got a preacher who's been invited to a church to speak over two weekends. He is dealing with the, the first part of his studies on week one and the second part on week two. Quite legitimately, at the beginning of week two, he could say to the congregation, and finally, and I think that probably Paul is doing something like that here. Paul is about to change direction. As we know by now, the main reason that Paul wrote this, um, 
letter was as a thank you note for the gift that they had sent him through one of their own people, a man by the name of Epaphroditus that we looked at last week. There were other reasons he wrote his letter, and one of them was to warn about this insidious heresy that was doing the rounds. In fact, we find in the New Testament some of Paul's harshest words that were um, focused on this particular heresy. A heresy that we still have with us in 2018, although we see it in different forms today. And the reason that this heresy was so devious is that it focused on the most important question of all. It focused on the question of how a person gets right with God. How are we saved? How can we be forgiven? How do we one day get into God's presence in heaven? And it's a question that we obviously need to get right at all costs. And history shows us that uh, people have uh, attempted to get right with God in a variety of ways. Uh, one of the ways is through asceticism, giving up pleasures, living in a measly way. For example, some 4th century monks lived on a, on a diet of bread and water and salt. One monk created a cell so small that he had to double up his body in order to get into it. And uh, many of these folk thought that by punishing themselves uh, to such a disciplined lifestyle, they were somehow winning points with God. The, the grazier monks lived in the forest and ate only wild herbs and roots. Others wore a loincloth of thorns. It's okay, guys. Uh, Calvin Klein is... Uh, uh, doesn't make that product anymore. But um, one monk by the name of Simon Stylites set the standard for extremism by living on top of a column which was four yards square for 37 years, prostrating himself 1,244 times a day as an attempt to win God's favour. Another way that people try to get right with God is through religion. Now, this is a, a very popular idea. It's where people believe that they can win points with God through an adherence to a particular religion. And uh, I'm sure that most of us here this morning would have heard of the Augustinian monk by the name of Martin Luther, who triggered off the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century. Now, Martin Luther, he did all the things that were prescribed by the 16th century Roman Catholic Church. Penance, fasting, confession, prayer. He even crawled on his knees up the 28 steps of the Scala Sancta, which supposedly was the residence of Pilate. And uh, the ancient or the middle, medieval uh, Catholic Church believed that by doing this, a person could be released from purgatory. And yet Martin Luther tried all of this religion, and yet he still had no sense of forgiveness. The Pharisees of Jesus' day tried to win God's favour by not only obeying the 613 laws of the Old Testament, but also by fulfilling all the rabbis' interpretations to it. And these laws were incredibly burdensome. 
For example, um, rabbis said that uh, a woman was not permitted to look in a mirror on a Sabbath. Just in case she saw a grey hair and she was tempted to pull it out. Which actually they constituted as work on the Sabbath. And the most extreme of all the Pharisees, and by the word Pharisee means separated ones, uh, the most uh, extreme of all of them were those that got the nickname Bleeding Pharisees, and I'm sure I've told you this before. They got the nickname because they feared that to look at a woman lustfully uh, when a woman approached them uh, was, was so wrong, and what they did, they closed their eyes, or they bowed their heads. And in closing their eyes and bowing their heads, they either fell into the gutter or banged into a lamppost, or whatever they did. And these bleeding Pharisees, I'm not swearing there, um, these bleeding Pharisees got their bruises as badges of holiness. Uh, the one with the most bruises wins sort of thing. Now you see, why do I mention all of that? All of these people in their own way were trying to get right with God by adopting a certain kind of behaviour. And uh, people down through the centuries have attempted to impress God either by giving up certain pleasures or by living harshly or following a certain code of behavior and devotion. Now, what we find in the verses that we read together this morning from Philippians chapter 3 verses 1 to 11 is not that different. Although some of the words that we read together, I'm sure that you, you feel are a little bit strange uh, to us living in the 21st century. But the message behind those words is still as relevant today as it ever was. And hopefully, by the time this morning we get to the end of this very complicated passage, you'll be able to say, yeah, I, I, I sort of get that now. <laughs> so what was this all about? Well, the Philippian church were in grave danger. And they needed to be aware of a terrible threat that could jeopardise their church and jeopardise Christianity. And if they succumbed to this threat, they would lose everything. And in the first century, there was a group of people who were following Paul around, and they were trying to undermine Paul's teaching, and they were called Judaizers. And they believed, and they taught, that a person is made right with God through believing in Christ, plus obeying what the Old Testament law taught. And the first thing, as we know, that the Old Testament law taught was that a male child would be circumcised at eight days old. So basically what these people who were following Paul around with this insidious heresy, they were saying that faith in Christ is not enough. And that a person actually needs to become Jewish before they can become a Christian. And there's no way that they could sing with us in Christ alone, my hope is found. Because their hope wasn't found in Christ alone. It was Christ plus obeying the law. Christ plus circumcision. And neither could they have sung what we sang this morning in that song, Cornerstone. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. They couldn't have sung that. Because they believed it was something, a plus, plus, plus. How many of you read Galatians recently? Why are you all looking at your toes? <laughs> it's a great book. It's in the New Testament and it's six chapters long. And 
you know, if you don't understand what I'm trying to share with you this morning, you'll never, ever be able to understand Paul's letter to Galatians because all six chapters are taken up um, with this heresy that was going around in the first century. And Paul uses some very strong words against them. Let me give you a flavour of this in chapter 1. Paul writing to the churches in Galatia, modern Turkey if you like. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of God, of Christ, and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be eternally condemned. Now, his words are... Quite aggressive, aren't they, really? You know, the tone and the content of his words. Paul's having a right old rant, and rightly so. And when we come to our passage this morning, this passage that we are trying to understand together, Paul's words are no kinder to the Philippians about this heresy, because this is what he writes in verse 3. Watch out for those dogs, for the men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. Okay, what's this all about? Well, let's come back to our question. And the question that this passage is addressing this morning is how a person is made right with God. And it may be that you are in this church this morning. It may be that you've come for some time. It may be that you're visiting for the first time this morning. And you might be asking that very same question. It's troubled you. It might have troubled you over many years. How is it that I can get right with God? You have no sense of forgiveness in your life. You have no sense of the assurance of God's love. And this question of how you can get right with God has really troubled you over many years. Well, the New Testament teaches that the answer to that question is through trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. Trusting in his death and resurrection that we can have peace with God. As we have sung this morning, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. But as I say, these Judaizers, these false teachers were coming and saying it was Christ plus, plus the law, plus circumcision. But there's no plus in it. It's not Christ plus good works. It's not Christ plus religious observance. It's not Christ plus just being a nice chap or living a disciplined life. And Paul says, beware of those dogs now, that's pretty strong talk, isn't it? Beware of those dogs. And if you see that uh, sign over someone's gate, beware of the dogs, it's, um, you know, you shouldn't probably enter. When I was at college many years ago and uh, I was with a number of students, we were on a mission together. And uh, that was including uh, Dave and Jill's son, Stuart. <clears throat> and uh, we were just handing out leaflets in a part of uh, Swansea, on the outer parts of Swansea. Uh, Stuart is now the director of ministry at uh, our headquarters in Malvern. And we were distributing uh, leaflets in the area. And Stuart came to this gate where it says, beware of the dog. I'm not sure whether he saw it or not. Or perhaps he had (coughs) enough faith to actually open the gate and go in. I'm not sure which it was. But it was one of the funniest things I've ever seen. (laughs) Because you had this little terrier... (laughs) And Stuart's quite a big lad, isn't he? 
And this little terrier was chasing him down the road for all his worth, about 50, 60 yards. And it got him in the end. <laughs> now, when Paul is using um, the word dogs, he didn't have in mind that cute little terrier that Stuart got bitten by, or Fifi the pet poodle. When Paul spoke of dogs, he was speaking of scavengers, carriers of disease, dirty and despised animals. And when Paul saw these men in, uh, very much in the same way, they were snapping at his heels, going from town to town and city to city. They were trying to poison his new converts. They were barking out their dangerous doctrines. And Paul says of these people, beware of the dogs. These men do evil. They are mutilators of the flesh. Now, you might be asking this morning, what on earth is going on here? Why is Paul so aggressive? And also, what's the big issue? Is there a big issue? There most certainly is. And the reason is this. God had a plan for the salvation of the world. And that plan was only through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, through his death and resurrection, would he rescue mankind. Through Jesus, and Jesus only, would people find forgiveness and freedom. Nothing more was needed. God did all that was necessary through Jesus. Now, if that's the case, which it is, then if anyone comes along and says that more is required, that people need to obey the Old Testament law, in effect, what they are saying is, what? They're saying God's got it wrong. They're saying Christ's death isn't enough. And that's why Paul says about them that they are preaching a different gospel, which is no gospel at all. Writing to the Galatians, uh, Paul is even stronger than that in, in his uh, words. <clears throat> and he says, as for those agitators, now he's speaking about these Judaizers, the people who are demanding circumcision, I wish they'd go the whole way and castrate themselves. <clears throat> you don't mess with Paul. Don't stop with circumcision. Chop it off. Go the whole way. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. There's a lovely, yes, there's a humor in that. But he's showing how serious this is. Okay, let's have a look at some of these verses this morning. Verse 3. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, that should be. Okay. Now what Paul is doing here in these words, he's providing for us a definition of a true Christian. The first thing he says, a true Christian will worship by the Spirit of God. I heard someone in their prayer this morning praying that uh, we should worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. And uh, in other words, a person, any person who is a Christian doesn't need a building or altars or liturgy or priests or externals that we can have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ quite independent of all of these things. Worship is not just about coming to a certain place or going through a certain ritual. And I was really pleased with what Dan said earlier about 
our worship can continues throughout the week in many, many different forms and ways as we are seeking to honour God through who we are and what we do within the community. And you see, being a part of a church isn't getting people right with God. It's actually the blessing of being a part of his family. The second thing that Paul says there are those who glory in Christ Jesus. In other words, their focus is not on themselves uh, and what they are doing in order to try to impress God, but their focus is on Jesus. Again, Paul writes in Galatians, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And thirdly, have no confidence in the flesh. Now, this is the other side of the coin, really. Not only must we see what Christ has done on the cross for us uh, as the way that we get right with God, but we must also recognise that our best efforts are utterly worthless. Utterly worthless. And what Paul means here by having no confidence in the flesh is perhaps best thought of by taking the last letter of the word flesh and then spelling it backwards. No confidence in self. That's what Paul is speaking about here. And I know I've said uh, this before, that I've met people over the years who claim that their best and favourite Bible verse is God helps those who help themselves. Now, I've got a little bit of a problem with that. You may say, what's my problem? Well, first of all, there is no such Bible verse as God helps those who help themselves. And secondly, it's the very opposite of what the Bible actually teaches. The Bible says there is nothing that we can do to help ourselves before God. The Bible says that at very best, we are sinners who need a saviour. And on many occasions over many years, I have asked people a question. You might have been asked this at some time yourself. And this is the question. If you were to die tonight and you were to stand before God and God were to say to you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? How would you respond to that? And I would say that your answer to that question would provide the evidence that you understand what a true Christian is. Many people who have answered that question that I've asked them have often focused on themselves, what they have done or not done. I belong to the Elim Church. I, have, I pray regularly. I read my Bible. I've lived an upright life. Wrong answers. Wrong answers. There is only one right answer. And that one answer doesn't focus on you. It focuses on Jesus. In Christ alone, my hope is found. What Paul does now in this quite complicated passage is that he starts sharing his own testimony. And he writes there, if anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. Now, the first thing that we need to understand here is that these false teachers 
taught that salvation was linked to them being Jewish and Israelite. So Paul lists seven things that showed him to be a true Jew. And then he says, there was a time when he too placed confidence in flesh or confidence in himself to be right with God through his Jewishness, through his religious efforts, through his lineage. But now realizes that all the things that he once thought were getting him closer to God were actually getting in the way. And he lists uh, very impressive uh, spiritual credentials here. Um, essentially what Paul is saying is that if a person could ever get to heaven uh, through his own righteousness and efforts, then Paul would have as he had been before. Now, all of this I recognize this morning because I, I, I do realize that there are a number of you who are fairly new to the Christian faith or exploring the Christian faith and you're wondering, what on earth is this strange passage all about? Stick with me a couple of minutes, if you will, and it will all be revealed, I promise you, okay? So we're going to just go through some of these uh, phrases and see what they mean and see how this can be explained. Okay, first of all, Paul's spiritual credentials. He says that he was circumcised on the eighth day. In other words, what he was saying is that he was a true blue Jew. Ishmaelites, rather, were circumcised in the 13th year. Proselytes, that means those who adopted the Jewish religion, were circumcised as adults. But only a true Jew would have been circumcised on the eighth day. Of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, the Benjamin tribe was a very special tribe. Israel's first king, Saul, came from this elite tribe of Benjamin. Paul says that he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. What on earth does that mean? Paul, or what he was formerly, was Saul of, of Tarsus. Do you know where Tarsus is? It's sort of Turkey, isn't it? Asia. So Paul was brought up as a true Jew, but outside his homeland, modern-day Turkey. He was brought up with the language, the manners, the culture of the Hebrews. He spoke Aramaic. Because I could imagine that many of the Jewish families would have just lost their culture and lost their heritage and lost their language, but not Paul. A modern-day example would be a family from South Wales <laughs> moving up into the English Midlands but still retain their superior culture. <laughs> All right? Keeping the Welsh language and love of all things Welsh, like male voice choirs and rugby, and feed their children lava bread and cockles and cowl. And some of you have no idea what that is. Paul, although he was living outside of his homeland, he still had the, the Hebrew language, customs, and scriptures taught to him. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He wasn't one of those name-only, nominal uh, Hebrews. What else does he say about himself? <laughs> a Pharisee. Now, that word Pharisee has changed over the years. Today, if you were to call someone a Pharisee, you'd probably get a punch in the eye. Because it's not a nice thing to call anyone, because it means essentially hypocrite. But in Paul's time, the Pharisees were the strictest of all the religious sects. 
And it was said in society, if anyone is going to get to heaven, it's going to be a Pharisee because they so scrupulously kept each of the details of the law. Everyone looked up to Pharisees. No one liked them, but everyone looked up to them. Paul also says that he was zealous, that he was persecuting the church. He not only kept the minute details of his religion, Judaism, but he went out of his way to rid the earth of every enemy to his faith. And there was no greater enemy in his eyes than the followers of Christ. They're a fanatic. A modern day example would perhaps be someone uh, from ISIS. Not only the desire to follow the Quran and embrace Sharia law, but would be zealously uh, desire to wipe the earth of infidels, those who are not followers of the Prophet Muhammad. He says as far as legalistic um, righteousness is concerned, that means keeping to the Old Testament law, he was faultless. In other words, he kept all the law perfectly uh, outwardly and all the traditions perfectly. No one could point a finger at him. Very religious very sincere man. And then he says this, after giving us a whole list of all the things that he said that were for his benefit, were helping him to find God, this is what he says next. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. But, hey, we're going to change direction here. All those things he thought would win him brownie points with God. His pedigree as a Jewish Pharisee, his religious zeal and the like, was worth nothing at all. Actually, they got in the way. That's what he's saying there. All his religion and morality and his history was useless to him in getting right with God. Just imagine how that could be updated um, today. It would be like someone saying, I was born into a long line of clergymen. My father was a minister, and my grandfather was a minister, and my uncle was a bishop, and I've always lived a good life, and I've been taught to pray to God, and I've tried my best to live uprightly, and I became a church member, and I give regularly and sacrificially to the church, and I taught in Sunday school, and I did my best. God couldn't expect more of me, could he? That would be very, very similar to what Paul is saying here by laying all his credentials out, giving this long list. He is saying essentially the same thing. But Paul says that everything that he thought that would have helped him find peace with God was as useful as a chocolate teapot. He doesn't actually use those words, by the way. I thought I'd just say that. But this is what he says. Verse 8. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. Now what Paul is doing here, he's looking back. He's looking back over 25 years as a follower of Jesus. He's looking back on all that he has been through, the suffering, the imprisonments, the shipwreck. He's come near to death. Does he regret it? Not at all. In fact, he is saying, all those things in my life that were precious to me before, all the things that I thought were important, things that I thought were getting me closer to God, I consider them 
rubbish. Now that word that Paul uses is a really interesting Greek word. The New International Version very politely translates it as rubbish. Actually, the word is a bit stronger than that. The Greek word is skubalon. I hope you're impressed with that. And it means dung. I consider them dung. Everything that I have once lived for is now as useful to me as a pile of dog dung. And even now, I'm probably putting it a lot politer than Paul would have put it, aren't I, Dan? But I'm not going there. Paul says, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. To know Christ and to have a relationship with him is what life is all about. Any regrets, Paul? Not at all. Some years ago we used to sing in this church, and we are going to sing it later on, uh, a song written by a guy called Graham Kendrick entitled Knowing You. And the words of this song, the, in, the whole song is based on these 11 verses that we are looking at this morning. Great words. Knowing you, Jesus, knowing you, there is no greater thing. You're my all, you're the best, you're my joy and righteousness, and I love you, Lord. All I once held dear, built my life upon. All this world reveres and wars to own. All I once thought gain, I have counted loss. Spent and worthless now compared to this. Now my heart's desire is to know you more. To be found in you and known as yours. To possess by faith what I could not earn. All surpassing gift of righteousness. What incredible words those are. And Paul continues, we're nearly there, folks. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. Now, Paul has just shared his testimony. He's told us of everything that he was and did before was not to be compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus. But now he looks forward and he speaks of his ambitions into the future. And in these uh, two verses, we've got four of his ambitions. Firstly, to know Christ intimately. He writes, I want to know Christ. Now, the Greek word that Paul uses here for for know means far more than just intellectual knowledge, knowing a, about someone or something. Rather, it's a personal knowledge. And there's a whole world of a difference between knowing about someone and knowing them. I know about the Queen. I don't actually know her. And Paul wanted to know Christ more intimately. And even though he was a, a, an amazing man, an apostle, a missionary uh, a church planter, he still had this desire to know more and more of Jesus. And that begs the question this morning, it's a question that we need to ask at this point in our service. Do you know about Jesus or do you know him? Now I'm speaking to every person here individually, might be corporately from the front, but this is your question. Do you know about Jesus 
or do you know him? Now, many people know about Jesus. They know the great stories of the New Testament. They know history. They know all about the Sermon on the Mount and the parables. You see, knowing about Jesus doesn't make you a Christian. Knowing about Jesus doesn't make you a Christian. Some of the world's most argumentative atheists know about Jesus too. Richard Dawkins has written books that are full of, of Jesus. But he would never claim to know Jesus. In fact, he would say that we are nuts to think so. And my question this morning is, do you know him personally? Do you have a relationship with him? Do you have a deep assurance of his love? Do you have a deep assurance that your sins have been forgiven? Do you know that you will leave this earth one day and that you will be in his presence for all of eternity? Very, very important questions. The second ambition that Paul has is to experience Christ's resurrection power. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. And Paul ex explains here that the resurrection of Christ is not just a past event in history, but it is also a present release of power. The Holy Spirit brings resurrection power into our lives as Christians. So to know Christ is also to know a new power in our lives. The same power that raised Christ from the dead lives in me, lives in us, in every Christian. And to enable us to live a life pleasing to God and to serve others, we need that power <coughs> at work in our lives day by day. So there's another challenge here in, in what Paul says. And this time is, do we live our lives with the power that God has made available to us? Do we live our lives with the power that God has made available to us. Because if we attempt to rely on our own willpower, we will fail every time. We need God's power. The power of the resurrection. Thirdly, his ambition was to partner in Christ's sufferings. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Now, I read this many times before, and I read it many times this week. It's a very, very difficult thing to understand this. It's, it makes Paul sound as if he has got some kind of martyr complex, or some kind of death wish. But I don't believe he's saying that at all. What I believe he's saying is that when he suffers for Christ... He will experience a special kind of bond, a fellowship, a deep companionship with Jesus who suffered for us all. That he will experience things about God through suffering that he could not learn in any other way. You know, when people suffer a tragedy, whether it's uh, divorce or loss of a child or some other tragedy... <coughs> There's very often a deep bond which is created with other people who've experienced the same tragedy in their lives. And people who might have formerly had very little to do with each other um, just have this, this, this common grief of suffering together. And people through that very often experience a deep sense of companionship. And Paul is saying that, that he is willing to suffer for Christ even to death. And in doing so, 
He believes that he will experience the power and love of Christ in a new, deeper, more profound way. And that indeed is the testimony of many people, that it was in those times of suffering that they truly experienced Christ. And fourthly, to know his destination and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. You see, knowing Christ also means that one day we will share his destiny. And Paul is confident uh, and has a confident hope. He looks forward to this. In chapter 1, he writes, For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. In chapter 1, he also writes that he desired to depart, to be with Christ, which is better by far. Death didn't scare him. He knew where he was going. Okay, time has gone. Let me come into land. In conclusion, lastly, Paul's words are very complicated. I'd, I'll give you that. And they're difficult because they deal with essentially first century issues. Very often I say, and you've heard me say, that sometimes the Bible is a difficult book because we are separated from its pages by 2,000 years and 2,000 miles. I'm not going to give you an examination on everything that we have uh, discussed this morning. But there is a question behind this which is much simpler and actually much, much more important. And that question is, where do you stand with God? Do you know about Christ? Or do you know Christ? There's a world of a difference. And the question I asked earlier was, if you were to die tonight and God were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? How would you respond to that question? Would you say to him and tell him all the things that you've done? Would you speak about your religious activity or beliefs? Would you say, well, I belonged to Tamath Elim Church? Would you say that my husband is a Christian or my wife is a Christian or my parents are Christians? You see, those answers will never open heaven's door. There is one answer. Jesus, Jesus, I've entrusted my life to you. I am relying on you, on your power alone, on your love alone, and what you did for me. On that cross and through your resurrection is enough. And that is what I believe. Let's pray.